Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On this episode, we're joined by Amber Payne. Amber is the publisher and general manager of The Emancipator. The Emancipator is the reimagining of the first abolitionist newspaper for a new day, explaining and exploring solutions to racial inequality. It began as a partnership between Boston University and the Boston Globe and is now housed at BU's Center for Anti-Racist Research. Amber is also a documentary filmmaker who has held prominent positions at NBC News, Teen Vogue, and Black Entertainment Television. She's a 2004 grad of the University of Virginia. Hi, Amber. Hey there, Mark. Thanks for joining me today. What's your journalism origin story? You know, as a kid, I was the kid in my family playing dress up, playing plays, you know, putting on performances, forcing my brothers and sister, my brother and sister to join me in in, in all of that. I was very theatrical. I, I One of my best friends, we would take tape recorders, yes, and conduct fake interviews <laughs> with each other and I guess with celebrities, imaginary celebrities. And I remember that and I wish that I had those tapes. <laughs> <laughs> like many, you know, a classic high school newspaper nerd and worked at my paper and edited my school paper. And I remember feeling that excitement and freedom of, wow, I get to decide what we want to do and what's important and what we get to cover. I remember this was the Monica Lewinsky days. And I remember, you know, we would get the Washington Post. I grew up in Southern Maryland. We'd get the Washington Post on the weekends. And, you know, I remember I'd read through and I, I remember when that story broke. And I remember opening up <laughs> a full multi-page spread, right? And and being curious about what happened and coming back to my little high school newspaper newsroom and saying, you know, I'm going to write an opinion piece on this. And I don't remember what I wrote. I do remember that my principal marked up some things and read and crossed some things <laughs> out. <laughs> I, I think I was always just interested in the production aspect of journalism and the fullness of that, you know, that it's not just the written word, but there's a visual aspect to it. And that's sure. really kind of how I grew up. So is there anything in your heritage or family that wouldn't have led that would have lent itself to storytelling? You know, I'm half Jamaican. My mother is from Jamaica. My father is white, so I'm a biracial black woman. It's an interesting background and family histories and and stories passed down. And so there is some of that. And I would also say just I had a very religious upbringing. And I've read the Bible and the stories in the Bible and, and parables and prophecies, and also just learning how to talk to people about the Bible and, and build a narrative and, and have a conversation. And so I, I think that also probably played out as well. So let's go one by one through your career stops. And I have the same kind of questions for each one. At NBC News, you were a producer and the founding founder and managing editor of NBC BLK. What was the most prominent thing that you did there and the biggest thing you took from that experience? Well, I'll start with being a producer at NBC News. You know, that was my first job getting to the network. Tom Brokaw was the anchor of the NBC Nightly News. And I worked my way up from a lowly, scared researcher and production assistant to, to be a producer. And I remember a moment where 
my executive producer called on me in a meeting. Amber, what do you think of this story? And in particular, it was, it was, I don't remember exactly, but it was, I guess I would say a black story. And I felt a little offended because looking around, I was the only black person in the room. You know, the staff was fairly diverse, but not, uh, I was the only black producer at that time. And I felt a little bit offended. Like she's just calling on me because I'm the black person. And I later came to wear that with more honor and responsibility and say to myself, you know what, I should have had a strong opinion about that story. And there's nothing wrong with that because looking around here, there isn't, there aren't too many people who look like me. There aren't too many people who have my lived experience and can speak up for these stories or who can shut them down if they really shouldn't be on the air or if there are narratives or harmful aspects to a story. I think back to visuals and, you know, you think of the evening news and some of the same old tropes and images that get played out when you're talking about immigrants and Black people. (laughs) And I think it was that moment that kind of gave me a shift of feeling like that responsibility, you know, I want to tell our stories. I want to stand up for them. I want to pitch them. How long did that take in time? Like, how how long was it between that first? Because I worked at a major TV network as well. And I remember being the scared person for the first few years and then kind of being on different topics, certainly, but being more, but being more willing to speak in time. How long did it take? Oh, I'd say it took me probably five years. Probably by the time, maybe by the time I was an associate producer and I felt a little more confident about speaking up for my stories and but it was still something that I've always struggled with. I, I continue to grow. I mean, I continue to look at other parts of my career and say, you you did better there, but you you didn't do, you didn't speak up that time. And I, you know, I'm trying to hold myself, continue to hold myself accountable for that. So what was the experience that you had with NBCBLK? Well, yeah, that was really an opportunity to build something from scratch. I felt like I was uh, a startup in a major news network. I had my corner where I could kind of be in my lab. And I finally got to pitch, not pitch stories, because I was the editor. I got to decide what we did. And all those stories that I wanted to do on a 22-minute broadcast that I'd get a minute 54, I could do those. I could do those in at NBCBLK. And so I think I learned to stand up for the story and to trust myself again, about speaking up. I think there were just moments where I was learning to trust my news judgment. I remember another producer and I wanted to send someone to Charlottesville the weekend of the Unite the Right rally because we had started covering something on Monticello and how they were finally embracing the narratives around slavery more fully and having a more fuller picture and tour of of Sally Hemings quarters and whatnot. And my our editor said, no, let's just, we're going to cover, we'll, we'll see what the wires get. We'll see what the local, you know, affiliate gets. We're going to wait on that. And I, I wish, I, I wish that I had pushed harder to say, no, we need to be there. This is really important. So that was just another kind of build upon movement. But I think really what I took away was to be creative and that, you know, there's a way to do something new, even though we feel like sometimes the template is there. All right. So same question for some of your other experiences. I've had many people 
to tell me that I should have someone from Teen Vogue on. And I think you're the first person who worked there that we've had on. What was your experience there? Cool. Teen Vogue, also just breaking the mold. I was the executive producer at Teen Vogue. So I was overseeing the video team and I would partner with the editorial team who were, they were all incredible. They were all younger than me. And I was like, I'm not even that old, but they're all younger than me. And I remember coming out of the traditional, you know, broadcast producer perspective, I got to do fun things. I mean, the first big story I got, I had to put on was an interview with Ashley Judd after the Harvey Weinstein scandal. And she was, this was one of the first on-camera interviews that she did. And I was in charge of that. And we needed to do something different. This was not a buttoned up news interview. This is Teen Vogue. And we had Ashley, we did the interview with her. I did the interview with her. And I asked her to tell me and demonstrate how she shuts down sexual harassment when people catcall her or say things to her. And she's literally demonstrating it. And she's pacing and she is telling us how she shuts people down and as if breaking the fourth wall and telling us. And it was totally something I never would have done for NBC News. And it worked and it was different. And I, I had to trust myself. They had to trust me. So, you know, we also did this, did this interview with, with a character from Stranger Things where we built out a set around him. Again, nothing we would do for the news. Um, but it also just taught me to kind of think bigger and and produce it up. And I kind of swung the pendulum in the other direction. I learned a lot about YouTube and like, just there's a very a hardcore strategy on 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 YouTube, YouTube optimization and hits and the machine that Condé Nast has built there on YouTube. I mean, it's it, it was kind of an interesting lesson on on how to build viral or scalable videos. Teen Vogue, I imagine, as you said, dealing with so many young people probably hopefully made you feel younger. It made me feel younger. I think I dressed cooler then also. <laughs> cool. All right. One other stop. BET, where you, where you were, among other things, I believe the managing editor of their website. Yeah. At BET, I think that's where I learned running a big team is hard. I had been on small teams. I'd run small teams. I'd managed a bunch of freelancers, but having you know, 20 people in the office every day and being there and being present is hard and you can't make everyone happy and you can't be everyone's friend. And you have to set a tone at the beginning or people will take advantage of you, to be honest. Is build and lead the kind of thing that you like to do? It is. It is. Yeah. Why? I don't know. It's fun. <laughs> I think it's just getting to do something new after, I think I, I loved being at NBC and being a producer there. It was a dream come true. I covered stories all over the world and I loved getting that call, you know, and getting, take, buying that one-way ticket. I bought a one-way ticket to South Africa when Nelson Mandela died to be part of our coverage team. But there's a, there is a, there is a mold. There is a formula. And I think, you know, after being there for 10 years, I, I knew the formula and I just wanted to do something new where we could actually try something. And you're, you're told oftentimes in a legacy newsroom, do something new, try something new. Let's, let's go big. And sometimes you get the opportunity to do it. And sometimes you get pulled back in because there's a formula and it works. 
so from there, all those different things shape you into the person who's now leading the Emancipator. What is the origin story, both of the Emancipator and your involvement with it? So the Emancipator, before I joined in the summer of 2020, when we were all washing our groceries and had no idea where we were going in this world, in this life, the Boston Globe opinion editor, Bina Venkatraman, and Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, who was the, who is the founded the director of the Center for Anti-Racist Research at Boston University, they held a virtual Juneteenth panel. It was very highly attended because we were all staying indoors and, and I think we were wearing our masks diligently by this time. And there was a lot to talk about. Racial disparities had been shoved to the forefront for anyone who was ignoring it or didn't know about it didn't understand it, those conversations were playing out because it was literally life or death at that time. And then you had the the uprisings, the racial justice uprising, the killing of George Floyd and of Breonna Taylor, and people were not going to take it. They were in the streets and they were looking for change and they were looking for conversation. And I was even hearing from friends from college I hadn't talked to who, you know, they were reading White Fragility. They were they were reading books. They were curious. They wanted to talk. They wanted to understand. And that meeting happened. That panel happened, highly attended, highly discussed. And Bina and Abram said, there must be more to this, more than just a virtual panel series and a, an occasional town hall on race you know we're that is tired that is a tired model like what can be done we need to reimagine so many systems why can't we reimagine journalism and with your expertise dr kendi you know the history of this abolitionist movement and you know bina leading you know this stellar editorial team and this paper there must be something we can done that can fuse journalism and editorial commentary and uh, in a progressive way that is really solutions forward. So from that moment, a lot had to get put in place legally for this collaboration between the two institutions, huge institutions, a huge effort. And I started in the summer of 2021. And uh, I had just finished the Neiman Fellowship for Journalists at Harvard, where I really had time to spend and sit back and think about making journalism better. And what is my role in that? And, you know, I want to be a leader. I want to develop people and work. I want to work with great people who have passion and I want to do something important. I want to do something different in journalism. This is, I'm a mother. I, I have my children that I'm thinking about of, of making the world a better place or a place they can understand. So, you know, that was really my my interest in joining was that there's history and context missing from a lot of the journalism that we were seeing. And part of that is the nature of the beast. I mean, like I said, I used to, I, I produced these minute 30 stories in a broadcast, you don't get the time and they do their job, but there must be another way to really put that through line out there for people who are grasping and searching for 
understanding why, why are black women dying at higher rates in childbirth or before childbirth? Why is that happening? We need to understand that. There's also history and context around that that has to do with our, our entire healthcare system. It has to do with the wealth gap. So all these issues are so interconnected and that's you know part of what we really hope to do with the emancipator is to show that and to explain that and it's 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 almost this domino effect where one thing you can't separate one thing from the other you can't say health disparities and health equity can also be a climate justice conversation they're all connected you mentioned history and context and i was watching a video commentary from Ibram, who, as you mentioned, head of the BU Anti-Racism Center, and I noticed that you have, there are a fair number of these on the Emancipator. He says, to be anti-racist is to recognize racial equality, that no racial group is more dangerous or safe. No person is dangerous or safe because of skin color. And to emancipate, to him, means emancipating the national consciousness from this thought. The piece had a lot of history. It had a lot of context in it. It had a great ending follow the evidence, stop following me. And I mentioned that with the idea that you have these video pieces, you're now in year two, hundreds of print pieces published, a newsletter with a large subscription base, dozens of events, journalism awards, now fully with BU, all of that to say, how do you come up with the ideas for the different projects and the stories and the videos and the things that we wind up seeing? Ooh, well, when I first started my, I had a co-editor, a founding co-editor, Deborah Douglas, an amazing journalist that I got to be in camp with and, and in thought partnership about how do we build something new? We came up with eight pages of ideas for different series and different kinds of explainers. And, you know, at the end of the day, we had to launch and we had to get started and we had to start seeing what resonated. So, Partly, there's a bit of a, a foundation, if you will, where we knew that we want to do explainers because people have questions. They don't understand how we got here. And and there's a way to to show people, you know, I think about about redlining and explaining redlining. And I, I had a, a family member who, you know, he's was very high up in his company in tech and he didn't know about redlining and that's okay. <laughs> because we need to talk about it and explain it and not make people feel like they can't ask those questions. Video, we have been looking at scholars and experts mainly, but we also, you know, it was Ibram who knew about a woman named Joanna Schroeder, who we asked to write, to pen this essay, a letter to my white sons. And that's, you know, Ibram had seen an essay that she did go viral talking about a real life experience of seeing her sons scroll through and just kind of like, like, like these posts that were borderline white nationalist and having to have that moment and that pull aside with them. So some of it, you know, these ideas come from our team. They come from Dr. Kendi. We get a lot of pitches. We work with contributors. You know, we don't have a staff writer at this time. So we, we look at, news pegs, we look at history and say, you know, is there a historical event or anniversary that marks more than just a this day in history where there's something a little 
to take it a step further that makes it more relevant for people. And it's not necessarily just Black America. You had the Vincent Chin series was was one thing. There was a recent piece about the census and how it categorizes Middle Eastern and Northern Africa people. Is is this something that you're, I guess, building on as well? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, toxic racism impacts us all, impacts us all, Black and white and Middle Eastern and Asian American. So I think that's also part of what we're going for is even though we're approaching this through the lens of, of, of abolition, of the abolition movement, of the civil rights movement, we're looking at these other marginalized groups and how they're impacted and how their history has often been buried. You know, that's what I was really thinking about as I was getting to is, is, is the story of Vincent Chin. And we thought it was important to do this story, this, this series, and it's actually a little different. It's a series of essays and poems by Asian American writers to commemorate and to talk about that horrible history of Vincent Chin, who many maybe haven't heard of. 40 years ago, 27-year-old Chinese American man who was brutally murdered in Detroit in 1982, which at the time was really the auto capital of the world, but Japanese cars were really infringing and, and cutting into that market. And one night he was out and a white auto worker beat him to death with a baseball bat. You know, we we knew that there would be anniversary pieces telling the history and having a, a very thorough write-up of what happened. But we wanted to do something that engaged Asian American writers and essayists to honor him and honor what happened in their own way and talk about how that movement has shaped them personally, but also shaped just the activist movement, something that, you know, a storyline that gets buried. So I think that's a, a series that we're, we're proud of because it, it really came full circle. I mean, the pandemic incited a new wave of xenophobia. And there are a lot of pieces of that racism and discrimination that Asian Americans have endured in the U.S. that go unrecognized. And, and we saw that come full circle. So that was a really good example of, of, of a piece that it was important to us. And you talked before about the completeness of things in terms of all the different aspects and the artwork for that series is important too, right? Yeah, that artwork was really award-winning now. We were honored for for that series and it was it was important that it was thematic, that it wasn't exploitive, exploitative and that we had an Asian um illustrator that that was 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 part of that and developing that and we worked closely with with her to develop that series and we are really grateful how long does the planning and and all the work that that goes into something like that what's like meetings strategy <laughs> discussions like what put a, put us in in your shoes for a second in terms of how you you formulate something like that you know, that particular series, we know that they, the the anniversary was approaching that summer. And I think it was maybe maybe by February or, or March that we said, okay, let's really activate on this. I had a contact named Frances who she wrote one of the, the stories and I knew that she was the go-to person who could connect me. So I think that's another thing, having a few contacts that you trust that trust you that you have a reputation with 
because Francis really opened the doors to connect us with these other writers. But from there on, it was it was regular meetings. We we the illustrator we we took we worked with her on maybe two different rounds of edits to really get the color palette and talk about the colors and talk about the themes and shared the essays to her. She read every essay so she could really craft these. And so, and then we decided we wanted to hear from these writers. We had them record their voices, reading their essays, because we also thought that was important too, to have another dynamic to those pieces. It was probably a four month process for that series. It, it's almost like you're taking how would I even say it? Like, there's the knowledge of having worked at NBC and these past places that you've been, and then operating on what is essentially a more blank canvas to be able to create it the way that you want it, rather than what the network or the the big industry might want. I'm getting the sense of that. Yeah, uh, from listening to you. I mean, I think that's for me where it's at right now. <laughs> yep. So. What are the best examples of solutions journalism that you've done? You've done, you you mentioned history pieces and context. What about solutions? So we, we got a grant from the solutions journalism network to do a series of health equity pieces. And we thought we could do this the traditional way, or we could try to do it the emancipator way. And we decided to do two of those pieces as health equity, neighborhood tours, video tours, and with these, you know, you still see all of the tenets of solutions journalism, really understanding the response to a problem, identifying whether there are any limitations to 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 these solutions that the community is coming up with. One of these pieces was in Chicago's Little Village neighborhood, a Mexican-American neighborhood, and we partnered with this hood historian, Sherman Dilla Thomas, who is known on TikTok and he's he's known in these social media streets. And we worked with him to take us through the neighborhood. We don't know the neighborhood. I'm not gonna parachute in here with my, you know, stick mic. Hi, I'm Amber Payne on the ground and I'm talking to people like, let's get with somebody who's in the neighborhood, who knows people, who know people. So through that, we talked about just uh, innovative solutions to community health issues. And when you're talking about the whole health of a community, there are these social determinants of health. So we did talk to a, a business owner who talks about the economic health. And this is a neighborhood that has a lot of a lot of business owners and in a and has has been fighting back against gentrification. We talk about how Culturally, this community takes care of their family. There was an infamous heat wave in Chicago where many elderly lost their lives. But in this community where these abuelas are, are, are oftentimes living at home, part of the family unit, they had the lowest number of deaths. So there are these interesting things that are happening in this community. So that was a, a different take on a solutions journalism story to do it in video. And we took you through these different chapters of the neighborhood. We did have a more traditional solutions journalism piece talking about a program in Chicago that was helping to keep people in their homes. And, you know, the housing crisis is, is a long stretching, never ending crisis. And this 
these these women in the community found that people were at jeopardy of of losing their homes over you know unpaid taxes and that they're and oftentimes the dollar amount on these we're not talking about you know thousands and thousands of dollars it's it's something that you know could be doable and possible and accessible to keep them in their homes if there was a, a program for that and they they developed one and it wasn't one of uh, where they just wiped away the debt. It was it was a program where it was in partnership where they would pay for part of it and that homeowner would pay for the other part. And so that was like a unique model. I think it's important to us to show different models that are can be replicated in other communities. So in addition to that, you also have a video documentary from MSNBC about the recall of a judge who undersentenced a privileged white male athlete from Stanford, Brock Turner, and how the recall, which won the intent, the intent of the people who were behind it was to do different things from what wound up happening, which was further enhancing racial disparities in sentencing. So the intentions and the results kind of veered off. You're doing a series of four articles related to this, specifically this month. Can you just explain what you're doing? Rebecca Richmond Cohen is the filmmaker behind this and she's also you know a lawyer herself and came to us to say you know I have this film it's actually an MSNBC film but there's a special carve out where we could work with another news outlet like yourself to publish the film in full so you can watch the full film on our YouTube page it's a it's a short documentary so you know it's it's I'm checking the timing it's 20 minutes and you can go to theemancipator.org and watch it for the next three months. We thought we'd do something that was more comprehensive. I mean, one idea I've had with The Emancipator is I really view us as a digital magazine and this idea of taking one topic that we really dive into in different ways. So one of those ways would be you can watch this full film and think about it. Here's a conversation with the filmmakers behind it. Why did they do this film? What are some of the issues with it? You know, this piece is called The Cognitive Dissonance of, Bra of Brock Turner. And then what are the other tentacles there from this case? So we, you know, we have a piece about how do you, how do we address sexual violence without contributing to the harm of mass incarceration? How does restorative justice fit into play here as a possibility instead of just putting more people in jail. You know, it's a very nuanced conversation and argument, and it's going to probably polarize people about, like, how, what does justice look like in that case? It caused me, when I watched it, to think about it in a completely different way, because, of course, I'm thinking probably at the beginning of it that, okay, this sort of makes sense to try to recall this judge, but that's not how that's exactly it, it's just not and that's and, what good storytelling right. is right because right exactly and and you're there with that and it's just interesting to see the different types of things that you're doing we've mentioned all these different types of things one more thing to bring up i'm looking at two recent events that you were involved in they're somewhat different one was a gathering of women to talk about breastfeeding while black the other was a conversation with corey bush you're scheduling these events I know that they're important to what the emancipator is. What is the importance? Well, there are three pillars of the emancipator. The written pieces that we do on site, 
social, social first approach. Sometimes we cover something on social media only and in-person convenings, bringing together community. I think it is our responsibility. We talk about audience engagement as journalists, and oftentimes that's you know, has in the past been like, well, who's our audience and what are they clicking on and and what do they buy at the mall? Audience engagement for us is actually having a two-way conversation with people and hearing from them and having this more symbiotic relationship with our audience. So the breastfeeding solution circle that we put on in early May, we this was based on a piece that a couple of doctors wrote for us, Boston Medical Center doctors who are doing research on breastfeeding disparities. And we partnered with them to invite doulas and and mothers in the Roxbury neighborhood in the area to come. And not for us to talk about how great this work is that we do, but to really hear from them. What are the challenges you're facing? What are some of the solutions you see? You know, why can't we lean into our community for these solutions as journalists? We go and interview the top minds of academia and government and these experts, which we need to do. But we also need to talk to the people at the grassroots level or the ground floor level who are living and breathing this, and they have ideas on what needs to change. And that is valid. You know, you are an expert on your lived experience. And we need to honor that. And we want to amplify that with these kinds of events. So these solution circles, that's something we're going to be doing more of, you know, and then the conversation with Corey, Representative Corey Bush in Washington, D.C. with Dr. Kendi, we wanted to bring them together. It was banned books week and uh, Representative Corey Bush is from Missouri and which has quite a history in, in civil rights, Dred Scott you know, they also claim to be kind of where redlining and race covenants started. And, you know, there's just a really interesting history there. And we wanted to have that conversation with someone who's trying to make change and and bring people together right in, in, in a bookstore. Getting back to what you were saying about the, the people, you're giving them an emotional investment, essentially, in your news outlet and making it feel, my sense is that you're making it feel like it's it's theirs too. With that in mind, what can the Emancipator be a year from now? Ooh, a year from now. Well, a year from now, you know, I think we're, we're, we're still, we're, we're, we want to be a household name. <laughs> Will we be that in a year? I mean, I think we're building our presence and our national presence, and we are going to be doing more of these events around the country, partnering with newsrooms, there are a lot of newsrooms who they need content. You know, the Emancipator is going to be, we are, and we're going to be amplifying that the Emancipator is open source and we want our stories to be shared. We want our stories to be picked up. And that's part of our mission. You know, we don't have a traditional advertising revenue strategy. We're really funded by philanthropic grants and, and gifts at this time. And we're working through how to really continue to be a sustainable news organization. So we we want to be we want to be everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> we want to do all the things and we want to make a difference. So I think to me it's when people um 
tell me that they've that they're seeing what we're doing and they they see that it's needed and that it's different because we really do feel like we're filling this void and what sets us apart is that we have a a gap to fill there's a gap to fill in this media landscape where you know there there isn't another national media publication that is that is catering to a cross section of marginalized communities and their allies with this single focus of exploring and explaining solutions to racial inequality so we want to be the go-to place for that. And I think I know where your, what your answer is going to be for this, but how do you view your role personally as a journalist in today's world? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a big responsibility. It's a big responsibility as a black journalist, as a black woman, you know, I felt that when I was launching NBC black or NBC BLK, we called it both. I felt it. I felt like very responsible for our stories and our people and doing this, doing this right, if you will. So I want to sustain us, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be taking more of this role of, as publisher of, of sustainability. You know, I'm, I'm looking for an editor to be my thought partner since my wonderful founding co-editor, Deborah is now doing amazing things at the Medill School, building a solutions journalism program. So I'm looking for, you know, that partner and I want to grow our team. You know, we're going to be twice as large by next summer. We're going to raise more money. We are going to be around. I'm going to speak it into the, into the existence. Yeah, I was going to say certainly a lot of challenges, but it seems like you've, you've stepped up to a lot of them so far in the first year plus of the the emancipator. So you're someone who's qualified to offer advice in many areas. And I think if people were listening carefully to this interview, there are bits and pieces in almost every answer you've given that have an advice component. But can you pick one area and offer advice to aspiring journalists who may be listening, wanting to feel optimistic about what they can be for journalism and what journalism can be for them? Hmm. Write your job description every year. That was advice when I was leaving NBC. I, I was I had accepted the Teen Vogue job. I was sure about it. I've been at NBC for 13 years. I need to get out of here to just do something new. And my one of my mentors said, you know, what do you want to what if you could do anything here at NBC, what would it be? Right, right. I wrote a crazy job description. It was crazy. And I took it to my bosses and they actually entertained it. Maybe not every single point on it, but it just showed me that you can reinvent your career. And even if that's not in the job description, you're going for a job and there's something in there that you don't think maybe would be your strength or, or there's something missing that you want to write in, write it in and write it. And I I often, and I, I, I asked the social media producer who's going to start for us next week. I, I, I told her, write me the job description. You've been interning with us. Write me the job description. What do you want to do here? What can you do? And I think it's like, that's kind of the kind of boss that I am is like, let me leverage your strengths also. And it just taught me, I, I wrote my job description. Actually, I'm now the publisher. It's a job description I wrote a year and a half ago knowing that we needed this person to do this job. And, and, and now that's my job and, and I'm kind of rewriting it, you know, as we go. And, and I just think that's the cool thing about journalism is we don't have to fit the mold. And so decide 
what you want to do. Look at what you're, you're, you're great at and look at what you want to learn. I'm learning as I go in this publisher role. So you may not have all the answers, but, but write it. <laughs> but as you said, you had some personal power and you spoke the position as you wanted it into existence after all this time that you've been in the industry. The show is called The Journalism Salute, and we salute you and the Emancipator for your good work. Is there a journalist or journalism organization that you're not affiliated with whose work you admire that you would like to salute? I'm going to salute Madeline Baer at El Timpano, and they are a journalism uh, outfit based in the Bay Area, and they serve Oakland's Latino and Mayan immigrant communities. They do it in a really unique way. Really, they do a lot of text message-based storytelling and engagement with their community, and I just think that's so cool. I think that is, is next level to be really just literally meeting people where they are on their phones and in the ways that they need to be served. So please follow El Timpano and check her out. Check them we out. We'll put a link in the show notes. Amber Payne, publisher, general manager of The Emancipator. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Thank you so much, Mark. It's an honor. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at journalismsalute at gmail.com.